0: The following lecture was delivered at the 8th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Benjamin Blech is an internationally recognized educator, religious leader, and lecturer, as well as the author of 12 best-selling books, in a national survey, he was recently ranked number 16 in a listing of the 50 most influential Jews in America. He will now present a lecture entitled, A Chassid in Camouflage, My Encounter with the Lubavitcher Rabbit. I've had remarkable experiences in my lifetime. Just heard him mention, I am involved now in a totally different story with uh, meetings with the heads of the church including I met with Pope John Paul II, I met with Pope Benedict in, for the sake of getting documents and items back from the Vatican that belonged to the Jewish people. I uh, was a Talmud of Rabbi Soloveitchik. My father was, a, gone a, an incredible, incredible scholar. As you heard, I'm a 10th generation rabbi. I've had many people to admire and to look up to in my life. But they asked me to speak about my encounter with Lubavitch Rebbe because it is so relevant, relevant for me, it changed my life in a sense. And I'm going to explain how and what insights it gave me. And I think it's a story that should be heard by everybody because it touches upon what I believe is the single most important idea for our generation. I know that all of you are familiar with the Chief Rabbi of the United Kingdom, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who just recently announced his retirement, and he is in the last few months of service to the Jewish community. I think you also know, because of his attachment and close, to closeness to Lubavitch, of his experience with the Rebbe. You know that uh, he had come from a family that was fairly observant, but not really in the Yeshivish world. He went to Cambridge as a student of philosophy. He was voted the philosopher of the decade in Cambridge. While he was there, and lived through the sixty-seven war, he was intrigued at the failure of the Jewish students to really identify with Judaism. And he wondered what happened in our generation. And he wondered also what the direction of his life should be now that he was a scholar in the field of philosophy and had leanings and strong feelings towards Orthodox Judaism. And he, at his own expense, decided he wanted to seek the truth and traveled to America and he made a journey to meet with two leaders of Orthodox Judaism to hear from them what he could get that could guide him in his life. And he said two meetings changed his life, one with the Labaoth Rebbe and the other with Rabbi Soloveitchik." I had the opportunity to be a student of Rabbi Soloveitchik. I sat at his right hand in his shir. I got smicha from Rabbi Soloveitchik. But I had not, until many years into my rabbinate, had any personal direct contact with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So my story that I will share with you today and the ideas that are part and parcel of that story have to do with what happened to me when, after about 35 years as rabbi of the Young Israel of Oceanside, I was finally given a sabbatical. It was about time. <laughs> it meant rabbis need an opportunity to refresh themselves. I made a commitment to myself to write a book at that time, which is when I wrote Understanding Judaism. I really needed it. I was excited about it. The sabbatical was about to begin when I get a call. Yes, we're calling from Lubavitch. The Rebbe would like to meet you. He has an important mission for you. Now, you must understand, Maybe I don't have to say it. I mean, look at me. The Rebbe would like to meet me. I didn't imagine why. So I asked, and they said, the Rebbe wants you to go to the Far East. Where? Uh, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Tokyo. We have Shluchim all over. And he wants you to speak and be of Jews. Now, I shouldn't have said what I said next. But I said, uh, I'm not a good fundraiser because my immediate assumption was they want me to go out there. If they want me to go out there, it must be because I have to raise money for Lubavitch and uh, I didn't think that was my specialty and is not what I wanted to do for the year of my sabbatical. And he said, you don't understand. We are paying for everything and you do not have to raise any funds at all. As a matter of fact, as I will tell you, uh, the four months that I spent throughout that area, I didn't have to open my wallet. Once, when I opened my wallet after the four months, a moth flew out. <laughs> it was not about money, because Novavich never is concerned with money at the outset. Afterwards, they'll get you. <laughs> but the point is, you first make up the idea of what you want to accomplish, and they hatched him in all those areas and they wanted somebody like me which at first I couldn't understand but eventually did who would go and speak in these areas because I am non-threatening in terms of my appearance to outsiders. I would come on like a modern Joe college or whatever it is at my age And nonetheless give the message. When they continued to press me, would you would you go and meet with the Rebbe and do this? I asked the question, do you know what I look like? And they said, We know everything about you from birth. (laughs) Which they did they thoroughly researched me, and lo and behold, the next step was for me to actually meet with the Rebbe and get my marching orders from him. Now, truth be told, I had met with the Rebbe about 20 years before that experience, just because I had been a young Israel rabbi, and at the time I was the president of the Council of Young Israel Rabbis and we were involved with Soviet Jewry and there was a problem and the only one who could help solve the problem was Labab Jarebi and so as president I was authorized to attempt to meet with him, which I then did. I told him the problem and he solved it or he told me what to do. When I came to see the Rebbe. His first comment to me was, so what happened with that issue of Soviet Jewry, which I had forgotten about. Mm-hmm. And he gave me the details, told me whatever was involved, and I didn't remember the details. <laughs> I was very embarrassed. But then he explained to me what he wanted and where I would go. And uh, I noticed in the write-up for this particular talk, I didn't write that paragraph. They said Rabbi Blech initially balked at going I mean, who would balk at? I was just simply more than curious as to why they would send me. But of course, if the Rebbe said go, I was more than happy to do so. More than that, I felt it was my obligation, and he outlined for me where I would be going and who would be guiding me and giving me my specific marching orders. I could not believe that there were Jews in those places and not just Jews. It's the old story. You mean there's a Lubavitch Inn? Let me tell you a story. Uh, One of the places I was going to was Hong Kong and uh, before I left, I had to actually speak to the rabbi there who was involved with Setting me up as to exact locations where I would be speaking, and so I made a long distance person-to-person call to Rabbi Avtzan in Hong Kong, and I say to the international operator, "I make a person-to-person call to Rabbi Avtzan in Hong Kong, and I give the number." She says, "Yes, I got it, Rabbi uh, Robert Avtzan in." Uh, I say, "No, no, no. Rabbi Avtzan." she says, uh, we must have a bad connection. Uh, it, it sounds like you said <laughs> rabbi. Uh, there can't be a rabbi in Hong Kong, right? I mean, uh, that's impossible. Yes, there is a rabbi in Hong Kong, Rabbi Avson. incredible, incredible story. There are rabbis in every one of those places, and I mention them for you. Australia, Melbourne, Sydney, New Zealand, a number of places in New Zealand, um, Hong Kong, as I told you, Tokyo, just amazing. I went to every one of those places. I went to Bangkok, people always ask me which was the most fascinating place that you were at? My wife and I were in agreement, Bangkok. You know why? In Bangkok, Abraham's father Terah, still has an idol store. <laughs> you cannot believe A totally different culture. You know, most places that you go to around the world, first thing you see is a McDonald's, right? Here, not only do you see Lubavitch, but you see a world totally different than our concept of what life is like. And lo and behold, Lubavitch is there to speak to Jews, to bring Jews back. To, to accomplish miracles that I'll get to. In all these places, and Baruch Hashem, you allow me to say it, is not immodest. I just have to report to you that it was extremely successful. It's extremely successful because I was able to reach into the hearts of these people and bring them back to who they really were. And when I came back, you know, the baviches have difficulty believing, especially in light of the fact that at a certain point, the Rebbe no longer had private meetings via Yechidud, that I had met with him twice once when I was going, and the second time when I came back. And he, the Rebbe, knew everything that happened. It was like a report card, you know. <laughs> and he reviewed very quickly, and gave me a big bracha, said, it's a fantastic job. And he says, I want to tell you something. He says, you know, you were surprised first that I asked you to go. I want you to know, and he points to me, you are a chosid in camouflage. <laughs> That's the title of the talk. That's how I got that nickname, chosid in camouflage. Now when I meet Lubavitch, I say, oh, you're the chosid in camouflage. And I want to analyze that statement and take that to serve as the key to the secret of Lubavitch. Before I get to that, I just want to veer off for a moment and tell you what else happened at that meeting, the second meeting, the bookend meeting when I came back. He said uh, to me, he wants to give me a bracha, is there anything special that you need? I said yes. My daughter, one of my daughters—I have three daughters, one son. My daughter, I had thought was uh, getting on in years. So you know what getting on in years means in Jewish family. You know she was twenty years already. <laughs> She's twenty years old, not married. Yet. It wasn't that she was a little older, but uh, we were concerned. And I said, if the Rebbe could give me a bracha that she should find her basher, that'd be a wonderful thing. He said, where is she? And behold, she was outside in the car. She was waiting for us and bring her in. Okay, her in. And he gave her bracha that within the year you should find your bashert. Now let me tell you what happened. A few months later, we were in Israel, my wife and I and my daughter. I had the great schus of dedicating a shul in memory of my father at a location that is the closest to the Kotel. Are you familiar with the Kotel HaKatan? There's the Kotel, right? You can't build a shul at the Kotel. <laughs> it's not, that's not a shul. But if you go a little bit behind in the Muslim quarter, in you know, a little street, there is an extension of the Kotel. It's called the Hotel HaKatan. And right there, a Terah Kohanim had a shul which was not paid for yet. And I have been able to raise the funds. It wasn't my own money. I <laughs> didn't have that kind of money. But I raised the money from people who uh, were kind enough to listen to me, and they named the shul Ohel Ben Zion, My father's name, Ben Zion, And they were going to have a dedication ceremony, and so my wife and I came, and my daughter, that daughter, had the time to come as well. We were at the hotel in the afternoon of the dedication, and Lo and behold, we meet Rabbi and Mrs. Lubovsky, who we had met in Melbourne, Australia on the tour. And they said to us, What are you doing here? We come regularly on a visit. And I explained to them, We're dedicating a show. Perhaps you would like to come to the dedication this, this evening. And they said, Be honored, we'll be there. And they came, and they met my daughter, and they said, "You know, by the way, we have a son, <laughs> and he comes to New York every so often on business. Perhaps they could get together. Perhaps uh, she make him a meal." So my daughter said, "Not only will I make a meal for him, even his camels, I will <laughs> feed, right? take care." And of course they love that, and. Uh, The father said something that would normally be the kiss of death for any Shidduch. He said, I am smitten by your daughter. So imagine if the father says that to his son, you know, that he's in love with this girl, then obviously, what is the son going to say? I'll never date her. You know, that's not for me. But lo and behold, he came to New York, he dated her, and they got married within the year. And of course, the fact that the Shidduch came about through someone whom I had met in Australia on the trip sent by the Rebbe during the year that the Rebbe gave the Bracha made clear that this was a marriage made in heaven. Right? I just had to add that as a little aside. What year? What year was it? 89. So let's get back to the chassid in camouflage and what I got out of that. My whole perspective was changed because I said, Look at how judgmental we are. We see people in the chassidic garb, you know, different, different kind of Jew. And the Rebbe saw me and did not see my external appearance, but he looked within, and I said, that's Lubavitch. Lubavitch looks within every person and sees Kiddusha, holiness, within. My particular talents, one aspect of it, But I think this chassid and camouflage idea goes much further. And I want to say something that is somewhat daring. Some people will say maybe it's a little over the top. But look, I believe it. You can hear what I believe and take what you want out of it. I believe that there is a concept whereby... Sins of a previous generation have to be rectified. That's not an original idea. And the concept of tikkun achet sometimes means that the soul of a person who didn't fulfill his mission entirely in one lifetime is brought back to other guys to finish the job. I'll tell you where we have this, for example. And uh, I want to say, this is a concept that's very Kabbalistic. In Judaism, you don't have to believe this, but it's nice to believe. And even if it's not literal, you can believe it based on how I'm going to explain it to you. <sighs> Yaakov, Yaakov Ovinu, he's a fantastic man. I mean, he's one of the three of us. Not only one of the three of us, but the Talmud says, Yaakov Bechil haAvot, the, the choice of the Ovot. Lo and behold, the rabbis say, as great as he was, ain't tov there's nobody who's perfect. And Yaakov had a sin that forced him to come back again in order to undo that sin, in order to live a life where he would be challenged once again, but not be guilty of that particular crime. Yaakov met Esav, and a number of times bowed down to him. He may have done it out of uh, courtesy. He may have done it for different reasons to prevent a fight. But a Jew should only bow to God. A Jew should not bow to any other human being. And so, according to Kabbalah, Yaakov came back once again, you know him by another name. Would anyone care to guess, according to Kabbalah, who Yaakov Avinu came back as? Mordechai. Mordechai. Fantastic. Because Mordechai was challenged by Haman, who tells every Jew to bow down, and Mordechai would not bow down. And so finally we have a Purim Yontif where we undo Tikkun HaChet. I tell you that as a preface to another hate of a godol, a giant in the Torah, an ultimate giant, a leader of the Jewish people that needed to be rectified. And it needed to be rectified in Jewish history sometime before Mashiach comes. we got to get rid of that particular sin. And I believe... Either the Rebbe was the Gilgal of that person I'm going to tell you about, or if you don't believe in Gilgal, he was the man appointed by God to undo that particular sin. Now, what sin am I talking about? Let me tell you. It was the sin, believe it or not, of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe! First of all, are you telling me that Moshe Rabbeinu sinned? You know you can get kicked out of yeshivas today sometimes when you say that a god will because they're all heroes of hot who knew Shas when they were four years old and who, you know, they overplay it. Uh, I am of the firm belief that Kohelis uh, was right. There's nobody who is perfect. And imperfections of Gidolim doesn't diminish them it rather brings them up to the greatest level because it makes their heroism and greatness something that might be relevant for us. Because if they are all perfect heroic figures, what does that have to do with me? I'm not like him and I'll never be like him, so, so I can't relate. And I dare say, <laughs> this was what we always taught, except today in certain segments, they, they no longer dare to say it the greatest, have some sins on their account. Now, I find it fascinating that if I ask a somewhat learned Jewish crowd... So what was Moshe's sin? Invariably, they will come up with one, which they think is the sin. It was a sin. Yes, it was responsible for the fact, according to the Torah and most commentators, that Moshe was not privileged to enter the Holy Land and fulfill his mission. But it wasn't the only sin. There was a sin at the beginning of his career that I want to share with you, which I think is the key to the idea that I want to emphasize with you. God sends Moshe on a mission. God didn't send him to the Far East. (laughs) But God appears to Moshe at the burning bush and, after a little while, tells him what he wants him to do and first of all moshe is immodest i always loved the fact that he said me onochi which in hebrew means who am i i say today every jew certainly every jewish leader being appointed with a prominent position would say with half english and half hebrew me onochi <laughs> <laughs> That's the the different version. In the Torah, who am I? I can understand that. I can understand humility. And of course, Moses was the most humble of all men. I can even understand him refusing up to three times because that's what a Jew is supposed to do when the president or the gabbai comes over to him. He says, we want you to dab in. For the Ahmed, you know you're supposed to refuse three times. No? I'm not worthy. No? Okay. Uh, unlike what usually happens, why did you ask him and not me? I'm better than him, right? You're supposed to refuse first. And I understand all that. But when you read the text, it's absolutely incredible because God is talking to him and God is telling him, go. The amount of refusals in the Torah seems incredible. What was bugging Moshe? What was troubling him? So the text tells us, Finally, finally, Moshe says, "Vehain lo yaminu li." And they won't believe me. Now, what follows has two ways of being understood: one, a non-Jewish way, and the other, a traditional Jewish Rashi perspective. The text says, in response, God says to Moshe. Okay, what's in your hand? And Moshe says, mate, a stick. So God says to him, you know what? Take the stick and throw it on the ground. And it becomes a snake. And then God says, pick it up. And he picks it up and no longer a snake. Boy, that's a great trick. (laughs) And then he says, take your hand and put it in your bosom. And he pulls it out and it's leprous, white as snow. And then God says, put it back. And it becomes cured. How do we learn this Story. I'll tell you how Christians learn it. I'll tell you the superficial way in which we understand this. Moses said, "They won't believe me. I need a trick, a sign. I need something to convince them." You know what? America's got talent. You got talent. I will give you two tricks that'll really do it. You'll knock them dead. They'll vote for you when you go to Vegas and you'll go wherever. This is a trick. Here's the trick. The stick to snake always works. It's a winner. And the hand to bosom, wow, that's the clincher. Amazing. That's the non-Jewish way of learning the story. And let me tell you how we teach it, even to children, little children in yeshivas, with Rashi. Moshe said to God, They won't believe me. God says to Moshe, What's in your hand? A stick. A stick, you deserve to be hit. Throw the stick on the ground. It became a snake. And what is a snake a symbol of in Torah language? A symbol. Don't give me Freud. I'm talking about within you do symbols within Torah, in terms of what they had been before. The Torah already explained the symbol. A snake is a symbol of what? Sin sin going all the way back to the original story right where man sins here's what happened Moses says they're not going to believe me and god says a stick in your hand you should be hit with a stick because you do not have enough faith now listen carefully to this because this is going to be the key when we speak of faith we think of faith in god are you telling me that Moshe didn't have enough faith in God? That's absurd. God just appeared to him. God was talking to him. There is a second dimension of faith. And to be a real Jew and to be a Jewish leader, you must have faith not only in God, you must also have faith in men. And certainly in your fellow Jews. Faith in Jews. How could you say the Hain lo ya'aminu Li? What was the second, quote, trick? Put your hands in your bosom and pull it out, and behold, it was leprous of snow. How do you say leprous in Hebrew? Metzorah. And what does Metzorah come from? Motzira. And where do we find it later in the Torah? In terms of the sin of Lashon Hora, speaking ill of others, which in those days became immediately punished by what we call leprosy, but really isn't leprosy at all. What it was was God saying, if you speak lash and horror about others, you should be isolated, isolated away from the opportunity to harm other human beings by your evil talk. So both signs were not signs later to convince Pharaoh to let the Jews go because of God's power, he could have had bigger and better tricks. What they were were messages. Messages to whom? To Moshe. Saying to him, how dare you? How dare you say about the Jewish people, the hain lo yaamino?" do you know what it means to be able no matter what to say they will believe Since when you became a rabbi I became a rabbi in 56 1956 the challenge of teaching orthodoxy and preaching orthodoxy in suburbia and on the college campus seemed so out of reach, so difficult a task, that one might well have been tempted to say, it's impossible. Hey, lawyer Aminuli. Lavav Chiribi sent out people to the college campuses. Imagine sending a guy out to Berkeley. What should I do in Berkeley? Forgive me if anyone's, but I'm just, a, I'm being a liberal, liberal, far out, left. Go and start a Lubavitcher and speak to the Talmudim, their students, you know, and get them interested in Judaism. What would a normal response be? Hey, lo I I mean, you know, you're sending me on a mission that is impossible, that is undoable. Why are you sending me there? It can't work. And this would be a rational approach. And what God said to Moshe is, do not use a rational approach when it comes to my message. You sinned. You spoke Lashon Hora about my people. Your hand is leprous. But you know what? Put your hand back in. Back in where? Next to your... Heart, and you will see when it comes from your heart, you will be able to get the message across. Don't ever say the Hein lo ya, Aminu li. The Rebbe, take it. I really believe this. And again, somebody said it too far. God chooses leaders. We are. For all intents and purposes, uh, something that I'll make clear in my talk tomorrow. Clearly, close to the end of the line in terms of Mashiach. You don't have to be a Lubavitcher to believe this. I mean, the world as we know it, in terms of the way we count, will less 6,000 years. Within the 6,000 year period, there has to be a Messianic age, and we don't have too many more years left. Clearly, this is a time when we need cleanup. We need to get stuff out of the way. And so, either the Rebbe was a Gilgal of Moshe to Tikun to rectify the sin, or if not, God chose the Levav to do what? To say that every Jew in the world today has within him or her the potential to be another Hashem. The line that I love the best from the Rebbe is there are only two kinds of Jews. Religious Jews and not yet religious Jews. (sighs) Oh, come on, that's so idealistic. Yeah, that's what we need for a leader of the Jewish people, a monarch. That's what God needed with Moshe. A believer, not, now mind you carefully, not a believer in God. That's easy to do. God is all-powerful. It's not hard to believe in God. What is hard? To believe in fellow men. To believe in Jews. To believe in the potential of every Jew. Let me tell you an incredible Torah that I heard in the name of the I haven't found it actually textually. I'm sure somebody here eventually will be able to point it out to me. But it's an incredibly profound insight. You know that the number 40 has very special meaning. You find it all over in Jewish stories and in Jewish law. Uh, Forty days Moses up on the mountain. Forty days uh, the the Jews were in the desert. Forty days uh, I know in the flood. Uh, There's a constant string of forties. And then a mikveh has forty saw, forty measures of water. A child in order to become viable considered human after 40 days. Beforehand it's called Mayim Bialmo. 40 is a very significant number. What is the philosophical meaning of 40? The rabbis tell us. Anytime you find 40, you find the idea of change. Change. Change from one state to another. Uh, With the flood, We've got to change the world. We have to get rid of the bad and start afresh. Uh, you go to the mikveh, change from one status to another. A convert goes to the mikveh, becomes a Jew. Total change. The 40 years in the desert changed that generation to a new generation. Now, lo and behold, when it comes to a sinner who committed terrible acts, a rusher, the Torah says, which means what? 40 lashes. And what's the purpose? Change. Change the person. Same thing, right? Change him from a sinner to someone who is sad. And yet, the Talmud says, we have this by oral law. You don't give him 40. It may say 40, but it's really 39. Wait a second, but it says 40. Well, we give a little, hey, in the number 40, you shall smite him. Now, what number is in the number 40? 39 is in 40. But come on, but it says 40. Yeah, well, it says 40 for another reason, to give you the concept of change. But really, it's 39, because we don't want 40. Why not? Said the Rebbe, because 40 makes total transformation, but every Jew even if he is the worst sinner, has never become a sinner to the core. There is always a little bit of a spark of goodness, a nitzutz shal kiddushah, that remains within him. You don't have to do 40. Just do 39. Because no Jew has ever reached the level of sinfulness that is represented by 40. Have faith. Have faith in Jews. So, lo and behold, something happened in this past generation. The confluence of events. Did Lubavitch cause it? Or was Lubavitch a response to it? I'll get to that. But what most people fail to realize is there is something in this generation, our generation, the past 15, 20 years, that has never, ever happened before in Jewish history. I'm going to repeat that. That has never, ever happened before in Jewish history. Don't think that apostasy is new people worship idols. Don't think intermarriage is new people intermarried. Don't think loss of faith is new, it happened, it happened even in the shtetl, believe it or not, no matter how much they romanticize it and glorify it, what's new in this generation, will someone tell me? I'll tell you the last word and you tell me the first two, last word is movement, what are the first two words? Bal tshuva movement, (sighs) do you understand that it never happened before, let me tell you a story. told you I'm a 10th generation rabbi that means my father was a rabbi as well so I was born in Switzerland my father was a rabbi in Zurich my father was a gadol and when there was a conference of Gidole Hador the chief rabbis in Europe my father attended and he came with some news that was shocking to the other rabbis But my father reassured them that it was true and what was the great news? He said to them, Do you hear what I'm saying to you? There was a Balchuva. One, one, one Balchuva. And my father brought this to the attention of the rabbis, and they were incredulous. A bal tshuva? I mean, all they knew was people moving away from, and all of a sudden, there is a bal tshuva. And My father brought this as remarkable news to the rabbis, who were stunned to hear it, and said, maybe this is a harbinger of things to come. Well, but there is a bal tshuva. Kine so, move now, 45 years later. I'm invited by the South African Jewish community to Johannesburg for schwuss. Well, fly out, they said, the only thing is we want you to speak all night. I did not know that all night in Johannesburg is the longest night in the world, right? Started at 7 o'clock and get finished at 7 o'clock. I mean, I was on for 12 hours straight. I was younger, right? Incredible. Now, at the beginning of the evening, the rabbi says to me, uh, I want to tell you that... Uh, There's something unusual in the group that you will be speaking to, but I don't want it to affect the way you will be speaking, so therefore I won't divulge it to you until the morning. (laughs) So why would you tell me this? I don't know. But I'll tell you in the morning. Now, I started that evening with 600 people following every word that I was saying, totally into Torah, drinking it in like someone who is thirsty in a desert and hasn't had water for, for days. I mean, they were absorbing every word. It was beautiful to see. And in the morning, again, I started with 600. In the morning, I would say I finished with 570, which is like unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. You have to give leeway. Some people just can't make it, but out of that number, wow. They all stayed because they loved Torah. And mind you, I'm not saying, because I taught it, okay, I was good. <laughs> but, but that's not the answer. They had to really care for learning Torah. And then, of course, I went over to the rabbi. I said, now nah, tell me what you want to tell me. What should I have known about this congregation? And he said, you see, of all these people, maybe 5% are FFB." from from birth, 95% of them are balay chuva. Wow. That's in South Africa. That is the story around the world. I go to shul sometimes. I say, okay, who knows about chuva? They laugh. My son, my daughter, my grandson, my grandma, this, my relative. Everybody's balchuva. That's the in thing to do, right? It's a club. It's the greatest club. Amazing. Balei chuva everywhere. How did that happen? The Hain lo ya'aminuli was a slogan that might have been appropriate 50 years ago. How the heck am I going to talk to these kids? can't tell them anything in religion and orthodoxy. So conservative movement is dying. Reform depends where you are, but days uh, are numbered. It's yes or no. I mean, we want to see truth, reality. And they believe and balay are everywhere because this is the beginning of uh, the approach of our messianic destiny, I believe, firmly. There's another way to explain it. Are you prepared for something spooky? Why not? I will tell you that what I say to you next might shake up some people here. So therefore you are free to accept it or not accept it. You say, I heard this rabbi, some people will say it's phenomenal, and other people say, oh, no, I can't buy into that. I just want to tell you, I'm entitled. I do buy into it. I think it is the answer, and I heard it from a gothel in Eretz Yisrael, who asked the question and then answered it. How is it that we are the first generation in history to have so many balachuba? What accounts for it? Why, why? How did it happen? And the answer is we are also the first generation in history to have lost 6 million of our people in one small time slot period, Six million, two million of them, perhaps more, young children, infants, who never had an opportunity to grow up to develop as Jews, to live their lives fully as Jews, to observe the commandments. They are entitled. And God said, before Mashiach comes, i got to bring them back and give them another chance. The Panevich said, the balay tshuva of our generation are the neshamas of those brutally slaughtered, killed, destroyed in the Holocaust and God looked around for Jewish homes, Jewish homes in which to place those souls and there weren't enough religious homes and so they were scattered all over including into homes where the parents were not religious but these were holy souls. And they were waiting for somebody to light the spark. And along comes Lubavitch and says, it can be done. And for all those who said, the response would be, that was said once before, and it's a lie. Because it can be done. And it was done because nobody can explain the remarkable flame within a Jewish soul that no matter how far it may stray can always be brought back. And I want to extend that for a second and tell you another story because I want to show you how that is true even in a more remarkable sense in historic terms over centuries and relate it to something I said in my first lecture, if you were here. Let me tell you a story about Viviani. Viviani, a brilliant woman, a doctor, who has two other PhDs, a woman who was the head of a hospital, and a woman whose story I will share with you because... At Yeshiva University, I had, many years ago, some young men who came from Seattle, Washington. They're my got a wonderful relationship. Get finished, they graduate YU, they go back to their hometown. And they get married. Now remember, I have been a first yeshiva there at Yeshiva University for 46 years. So years overlap, and there's a lot that has happened. One of them has a son who as a teenager becomes smitten with cancer and he has a grueling, horrible three-year period of illness after which he expires. During that time the Jewish community, as many Jewish communities, was absolutely incredible. The way Jews respond collectively to crisis, we take for granted. It doesn't happen elsewhere. There wasn't an hour that this kid was left alone, that somebody didn't volunteer to learn with him, to play with him, to feed him, to this, to that, to that, to that. Dr. Viviani, the woman, saw this and was overwhelmed. She watched this. She was so utterly moved by how Jews acted, that when the young boy died with her holding his hand at the moment which she said was a spiritual moment, the likes of which she had never had, she then went to my former student, the father, and said, I want to understand Judaism better. I want to study. I think I want to convert. She says, give me some books to read. He gave her my book. He gave her other books. She read and read. Uh, you must understand. Brilliant, brilliant woman. And a few months later, she says, I want to speak to a rabbi. Yes, I want to initiate conversion. And he says, not a simple matter. She says, uh, well, let me talk to a rabbi. You know, when I read Rabbi Black's book, she flew in to see me in New York. Now, I am duty-bound, as all rabbis are, to do what? Discourage, Discourage, but at the same time, you know, keep an open mind. Uh, What I was concerned about, in all honesty, was that she had been away from her family. She came from Brazil. She lived in South Pole. She was away from all family, so she had not had the benefit of family life. And here she sees a community that became a family. So she's overwhelmed. I said, you just have to make sure. That this is not just a substitute for your family, but it's really a religious conviction. I would suggest go back to Sao Paulo for a while and see, once you with your family a little bit, and see what happens. Goes back to Sao Paulo. They make a head of the hospital in Sao Paulo for the little while that she's there. But she still pursues her dream. And it wasn't too much later that she called me up and she said, No, no, I'm going through with it. I want to convert. She comes back because she knows that she has to be taught by rabbi. She got a position in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and she asked me for the local Orthodox rabbi, who's a wonderful man, I gave a name, and she studied with him for close to a year. And one day I get a phone call, she said, Rabbi Blech, I want you to be with me at the happiest day of my life. They said, I'm ready, I'm gonna to go to the mikveh, I'm gonna be converted, and I was there. And I heard her saying as she jumped into the water, Shema Yisrael, Shem on Hashem, Wokeinu, Hashem Echad. And I cried, and she cried, and she is a Jew. The story's not over. Yeah, I'll do it in five. <laughs> Doesn't take too long, and she meets a nice Jewish boy. She wasn't sure if he was religious really enough. <laughs> right, standard story. But, okay, and he makes all kinds of promises, and she is going to get married. And she decides to get married back home so that her family can witness this. And her family, I mean, she had a nun in the family, she had a priest in the family, but still, family is family. And uh, she's going to go back, but she's going to go back to the original place where her family came from. You ready for this? The original place where family came from was Recife, Brazil. You remember this morning's talk? Now, the first Jewish community, 1654, Recife. They were there for a year, and then they were forced either to convert or to leave. Twenty-three of them went to New Amsterdam, to New York. I told you this morning. The rest of them first became Irano jews and subsequently was lost, right? First you do Judaism in hiding and then you lose it. When this Viviani told her grandmother that she was converting, her grandmother called her in and said to her, I have a secret to tell you. And from both sides... Mother and her father. She came from Murano Jews who had been forced to give up their faith. It's a big question whether she even needed conversion, but she had done it already. She was Jewish and she didn't know it. I have found this all too often. When people convert and they start to do research on their backgrounds, they suddenly discover, say Yiddish and shaman," and that Yiddish and shaman speaks to the person after decades and even after centuries. I promised my wife I would tell the missing ingredient in the story because a husband should always confess if he made a mistake. I want to say publicly, the last part of the story is, you hear this now, this is historic. I was wrong, and my wife was right. <laughs> you heard this, I mean, you'll never hear this in, in, in the main, never. I was wrong, she was right, because Viviani invited me to the wedding, of course. And getting to Recife it was three stops, it was going to take a week, and then a couple of days, and then come back. I had finals. And I, I just I, I can't give up yeshiva, I can't give up teaching, I can't do it. Elaine said it's once in a lifetime and look 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 at the experience, look what the relationship and everything. <sighs> Alright, shoot me. I didn't go. We make mistakes. I should have gone. The wedding was the most incredible wedding. I did not mention she was an absolutely magnificently beautiful woman and beautiful bride. She was brilliant. It was the first Jewish wedding in Recife, Brazil, since 1654. It was a kosher wedding. And how the heck did they have a kosher wedding in Recife? Because Chabad was there and made the wedding because Chabad is everywhere. You want to hear something? Uh, What was it, three years ago? I had a small part in a movie. I was in a movie. And the movie was going to open the film festival in Monte Carlo. And therefore, we were invited to walk the red carpet at the opening. And Prince Albert was going to be there and dedicate this. And the movie was fantastic. Right? But I said... What the heck are we going to do? Monte Carlo over Shabbos. Can't go to shul. So I did a simple thing. Again, I told you about the wisest rabbi in the world, Rabbi Google, right? So I looked up Rabbi Google. All I had to do was Lubavitch, Monte Carlo. And sure enough, there's a name and a phone number I got in touch with. I said, tell me you have a shul." Absolutely. We went, we walked the red carpet to the movie, right? But on Shabbat, we walked the heavenly carpet to Lubavitch, And what does all this teach me? That not only I am a chassid in camouflage, but so is every Jew. Every Jew is a chassid because every Jew has a spark of God within him or her. That spark has been ignited in our generation. It must be. Either because we are remnants of the Holocaust reborn, or because the time is drawing near for Mashiach, and it's the last opportunity. There are two kinds of Jews, those who are religious Jews, and those who are not yet religious, and I guess both of us kinds are here for this retreat. Let's keep moving together until we help bring the Mashiach.